Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome once again to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. And by we, I mean myself, Blaine Dowler, and my ever-present co-host, Trey Hooks. How are you doing, Trey? Good, Blaine. Hello, everyone. All right, so this month we are looking at the choice from the 1951 releases, specifically An American in Paris. So this one was directed by Vincent Minnelli, and it was adapted into a film by Alan J. Lerner based on a George Gushrin ballet called An American in Paris, which takes a pretty prominent role towards the end of the film. Uh, Original release date was November 11th, 1951. A plot summary that is courteously provided by the writers at Wikipedia Summarizes this as American World War II veteran Jerry Mulligan, Gene Kelly, is an exuberant expatriate in Paris trying to make a reputation as a painter. His friend and neighbor, Adam Cook, Oscar Levant, is a struggling concert pianist and longtime associate of a French singer, Henri Borel, Georges Guitare. At the ground floor bar, Henri tells Adam about his cultured girlfriend, Lisa Bouvier, Leslie Caron. Jerry joins them later, before going out to sell his art. A lonely society woman and heiress, Mila Roberts, Nina Foch, finds Jerry displaying his paintings in Montmartre and takes an interest in him and his art. She brings him to her apartment to pay for his works and invites him to a party dinner that she is throwing later that night. After singing with French children on the way home, I got rhythm, Jerry goes up to Milo's apartment. He quickly finds out that the party is actually a one-on-one date and tells Milo he has no interest in being a paid escort. When he attempts to leave after giving her money back, she insists she is only interested in his art. They go to a crowded bar, and Milo offers to sponsor an art show for Jerry as a friendly gesture. Some of Milo's friends arrive, and while sitting with them, Jerry sees Lisa seated with friends at the next table and is instantly smitten. He ignores Milo and her acquaintances, and instead pretends to know Lisa already and dances with her. She is standoffish and gives Jerry a wrong phone number, but is innocently corrected by someone at her table. Milo is upset by Jerry's behavior and suddenly decides to go home. On their way home, she tells Jerry he was very rude cavorting with a girl he does not know while in her presence. Tired of Milo, Jerry gets out of the car and bids her farewell. The next day, Jerry calls Lisa at her work, but she tells him to never call her again. Jerry and Milo meet at a cafe and she informs him a collector is interested in his paintings and she arranged a showing later that day. Before going to the showing, he goes to the perfumery where Lisa works and she consents to a late dinner with him. She does not want to be seen eating with him in public, but they share a romantic song and dance on the banks of the Seine River in the shadows of the Notre Dame. However, she quickly rushes off to meet Henri after his performance, Mobile to Stairway to Paradise, where Henri tells her that he has been asked to go on a tour of America and asks her to marry him. Later, Adam humorously daydreams he is performing Gershwin's Concerto in F for Piano and Orchestra for a gala audience in a concert hall. As the scene progresses, 
Adam is also revealed to be the conductor, other members of the orchestra, and even an enthusiastic audience member applauding himself at the end. Milo gets Jerry an art studio and tells him she has planned an exhibition of his work in three months. He initially refuses the studio because he does not have the money for it, but eventually accepts it under the condition he pay Milo back when his art proceeds allow him. Roughly a month later, and after much courting, Lisa abruptly runs off when she and Jerry arrive by taxi at his apartment. When Jerry complains to Adam, Adam is shocked to realize both Henri and Jerry are involved with the same woman. Henri and Jerry discuss the woman they each loved, it's wonderful, unaware that she is the same woman. That night, Jerry and Lisa reunite in the same place on the banks of the Seine, close to Notre Dame. She informs him she is marrying Henri the next day and going to America. Lisa feels a sense of duty to Henri, to whom she feels indebted for keeping her safe during World War II. She and Jerry proclaim their love for each other. Feeling slighted, Jerry invites Milo to the art student's masked ball and kisses her. At the raucous party, with everyone in black and white costumes, they meet Henri and Lise, and Jerry finally tells Milo about his feelings for Lise. Sorry, it's Lisa is how they keep pronouncing it. I'm reading it because it's spelled L-I-S-E, the French spelling. Henri overhears Jerry and Lisa saying goodbye to each other and realizes the truth. As Henri and Lisa drive away, Jerry daydreams about being with Lise all over Paris to the tune of George Gershwin composition and American in Paris. His reverie is broken by a car horn, the sound of Henri bringing Lisa back to him. They embrace as the Gershwin composition and the film end. So yeah, that is the plot of this particular film. So what's your history with this film? Other than a few clips here and there, um, this was the first time I saw it for this podcast. Okay. And what were your impressions? There are some films which are recognized classics and you feel like there's something wrong with you because it just doesn't connect with you. And this is on that short list of films. It just left me cold. Part of it is, I, I don't know why, but ballet as an art form is not an art form that grabs me. We'll be mentioning Singing in the Rain probably quite a bit. Mm -hmm. To me, the one drawback of that film is the ballet sequence that I feel goes on too long. But there I felt like it served a story point. I'm not so sure that this one did. I don't know that we needed 17 minutes of him daydreaming what additional days with Lise may have been like. But that's me recognizing that the film hinges on an art form that just doesn't speak to me for whatever reason. Yeah, this is not my first time seeing it. Um, I'm told when I was three or four, I used to go around the house singing I Got Rhythm from this. Because my mother raised my sister and I on the classic musicals. But I don't know that I ever sat through the entire thing as a child. Um, I am with you where ballet doesn't do anything for me. I can respect the talent and efforts that go into it. It just isn't my choice of entertainment. And I have the same sticking point with you with Singing in the Rain, where that seven-minute ballet at the end that serves a story purpose feels too long. And the ballet here, which has a less justifiable story purpose, I'm not going to say it, it does nothing it really does show the lament and how he's not just moving to Milo, but that's about all it shows. But it didn't need 17 and a half minutes to show us that. And by comparison with the studios, 
this is the horse that MGM wanted to back. They were pushing it for Best Picture. We're not really expecting it to win, but they were pushing for that nomination to promote it to the point that when Singing in the Rain came out in early 1952, the role that had been written for Oscar Levant ended up going to Donald O'Connor as Cosmo Brown in Singing in the Rain because Oscar was needed here for recasting. And American in Paris ran a little bit late, partly because Leslie Caron suffered malnutrition in World War II and could only work every other day, which slowed down production. And partly because Nino Fox had to take a few days off when she got chicken pox. So Gene Kelly was splitting time between the two. And it, I look at Singing in the Rain with a $260,000 budget. And I look at An American in Paris with a $2.7 million budget, including $500,000 for that ballet. And when I find out that because this is the horse that MGM wanted to back, once Singing in the Rain broke even, any movie theater that said we want Singing in the Rain was sent an American in Paris instead and sent promotion material saying back by popular demand. Because this is the one they were pushing. They were trying to create the perception that it was that much in demand that they buried Singing in the Rain because Mayer and Gene Kelly felt this was the superior film. Kelly is great in it, but I feel like the supporting cast here lets him down. If we're going to compare the film, so for example, when you said that Oscar Levant was supposed to play the role that Donald O'Connor played in Singing in the Rain, mm-hmm. I never got the sense in this film that Jerry and Adam were really friends. But you believe it with the t- with Donald O'Connor and Gene Kelly and with, with, you know, Cosmo and I can't remember Gene Kelly's name and Singing in the Rain, but... Don Lockwood. Don Lockwood, yeah. You, you believe it with Cosmo and uh, Don in Singing in the Rain. So I, I just can't conceive of that. I feel like we got lucky there. I would agree. Oscar Lavant was reluctant to do this at all because his primary role was as a concert pianist. He didn't do a lot of acting. He took the job because he was good personal friends with producer Arthur Freed and with George Gershwin. So they asked him to, and he didn't want to turn his friends down. So, yeah, I I think it was a lot of happy circumstances for Singing in the Rain that slowed this down to change that casting and to do other things. And the idea that people could watch both completed films and say An American in Paris is the horse to back just blows my mind. I I would not only say that Singing in the Rain is the best Gene Kelly film, I would say it is the best musical in the history of Hollywood. I could get behind that, or, or at least close to. And we've, I mean, we've progressed quite a bit in terms of the composition and qualities of musicals from when we began this podcast right so you know in the early days of talkies the musicals were predominantly let's grab a collection of music and try and string it together somehow thematically and pretty much every mm-hmm. single plot was let's put on a show to kind of justify mm-hmm. you know having the musical numbers in the film um so we've progressed quite a bit from there and technically both An American in Paris and Singing in the Rain, both are still the let's take a collection of songs and kind of try and string a story together around them. I think part of perhaps what elevates 
singing in the rain above an American in Paris was Gershwin had already passed, so he wasn't available to collaborate on this. Whereas with singing in the rain, the songwriters whose songs were being strung together were involved in the writing of that musical. So, you know, I felt like they were grasping sometimes to slot some of the songs in that they wanted to slot here, if that makes sense. Yeah, I would agree. I think I mean, one of the fundamental differences, even though this is credited to Vincent Minnelli as the director, Gene Kelly did step up and direct entire sequences because Minnelli was in the middle of a messy divorce with Judy Garland, and he needed support to try and keep things on track. But I would say that the fundamental difference between them, or one of the two fundamental differences between them is Vincent Minnelli was all about the musicals. He had previously worked with Gene Kelly in The Pirate. He would later work with Gene Kelly on Brigadoon. Honestly, both of those, I think, are superior to this film. And part of my issues we haven't even touched yet, but they are both about the music and the dancing. So this feels like they picked the pieces that they wanted to do for the music and dancing and, like you said, wrapped a story around it. So I think this appeals primarily to the musical fans who are there to see the music and dancing. If you're a fan of the ballet, I think you could really enjoy this film. Whereas Singing in the Rain, that wasn't uh, Vincent Minnelli directing. That was Stanley Donnan, who is a very capable director, but he's not particularly associated with the musical genre. So there he was actually officially co-director with Gene Kelly. So Kelly took over for the, the musical numbers, and Stanley Donnan took over for the story beats, but they planned it in isolation. So they sat down, they figured out what they were wanting to do, how to do it, and then when they were out there on set, it was one voice coming from two mouths. Same direction, same everything. And I think Stanley Donnan's story sense, I mean, this is the, the guy who would direct Charade with Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant, I think his story sense was a, a great benefit to Singing in the Rain because, like you said, there was a collection of songs that they bought and they had to bring them together and it just feels far more natural. Singing in the Rain feels like it's telling a story and the music is used to support that story, whereas here it feels like the story is used to support the sequence of song and dance numbers that they wanted to have in here. It, it's, you know one feels like it's kind of backwards. And I, I think that is one of the fundamental differences between them and why, to my mind, Singing in the Rain will always be the more successful of the two and at least the more engaging and more entertaining. And one of the things that they will, I will give both credit for, like you said, early musicals like Broadway Melody, people were putting on a show because even though I was raised on musicals, one of the issues I have with a lot of them is understanding why people are breaking into song and dance routines. Some do that better than others. Here, a lot of our leads are musical people, but, I mean, that can justify Adam, right? He's the concert pianist. Henri is a singer. So those guys, I have no problems constantly expressing themselves in song. Why is Lisa, the perfume sales lady, expressing herself in song and dance? Why is the painter expressing himself in song and dance? It Whereas in Singing in the Rain, everything is either a big production as part of the story because they're making a musical, or the people who make it just dancing amongst themselves. You don't have an entire street full of people breaking out into song and dance and joining them. <clears throat> Look at Adam's Daydream, a technical tour de force. Yes. 
particularly for when this film was made. It is only there to give Adam something to do and to use that piece of music. It, it is. It's also an homage to Buster Keaton's The Playhouse, made in 1921, where Buster Keaton was every musician, the composer, and the audience. So as impressive as it is to have multiple Adams on the screen at once, it to me, it doesn't strike me as being as innovative as it does to others because I'm a Buster Keaton fan going, yeah, this guy did it 30 years earlier. And it's a clear homage. Some of the, the setups, like they're not reinventing the wheel. They are saying Buster Keaton was awesome and we are going to, to pay homage. Okay. I haven't seen that Buster Keaton film. I'll have to check it out. But you, you take that scene and then compare it with Donald Connor's showpiece number in Singing in the Rain, Make Him Laugh. That served a story beat mm-hmm. point. Our musical, or excuse me, our film was a flop. Maybe we should lean into it. And he's trying to make that point. There's a mm-hmm. difference there between, you know, one serving a plot, moving the story forward, and one just being there to look at and appreciate. Yeah, that's Make Him Laugh was a huge piece and does also homage, or a little more than homage. That was actually a last minute addition in Singing in the Rain because they knew that they, the story beat was missing and they needed something. So they called Donald O'Connor and he wrote the lyrics on the cab ride to the studio uh, to the tune of Be a Clown from The Pirate, which was the earlier collaboration between Gene Kelly and Vincent Minnelli. But again, it, it shows that they were focused on the story. Right? They said, our story is flawed. There's a, a missing piece in Don Lockwood's emotional journey. We've got him in this depression funk. Everything is going wrong in his life. We need something to pick up his spirits. And they, they called Donald O'Connor and said, can you think of something that Cosmo can do to help him pick up his spirits and get him back on track? And then Don Lockwood put that sequence together and did an incredible job and had to rest for three days because he was a three-pack-a-day smoker, and that was incredibly strenuous. And then they found out that they didn't load the film properly, none of it was recorded, and he had to do it all again. Oh, wow. But, yeah, I... Should probably restrain a lot of that. If you guys want to hear more about Singing in the Rain, I actually previously discussed it with our guest host from Gone with the Wind um, back in an episode of Is It Jaws with Paul Spataro. So there, there's a detailed discussion there. But uh, suffice it to say, unless you are looking at the quality of the ballet itself, I would say Singing in the Rain is the superior film in every respect. I mean, would you agree with that? I would. I think one of the deficits that an American in Paris has is you have an extremely strong lead, but I don't know that the rest of the cast elevates to that same level. No, even, like, you're talking about Oscar Levant as Adam Cook. The only time that I was really engaged by his performance is when they were sitting in a cafe and he realizes that his two best friends are in love with the same woman. Because they knew they were both in love, but the conversations they had with Adam were always either Omri and Adam only, or Jerry and Adam only, any time the actual name was mentioned. So when he's drinking everybody's brandy and forgetting to take the cigarette out of his mouth before he drinks his coffee, because he's just panicking, going, "What? how do I deal with this? What do I do? That sequence I enjoyed. And I was actually enjoying his performance far more than the song Henri and Jerry are singing. The 
It's wonderful. Right? The musical number to me was taking a back burner because that was not the engaging part of the story. And I mean, I said I had two major problems. It's time to really, I think I should bring out the second one. Because I, I think at the end, we're kind of tipping our hands for whether or not we thought this deserved the win. The other issue I have is that the gender politics are exceptionally dated. And I, I, based on other things I've seen from the era, I think they would already start to feel slightly dated in 1951. And watching it in 2020 or 2021, it's not going to get any better. We have the first time that Jerry is in Milo's apartment and sees she's very wealthy after she buys his paintings, his immediate reaction was, okay, did you get the money from your dad or your husband? As though women were incapable of earning that money on their own. He sees Lisa and eavesdrops, just he's smitten with her on sight, and he goes to the table and drags her away, despite her protests. And he keeps dancing with her. She's saying, bring me back to the table. He's saying no. She deliberately gives him the wrong phone number and trying to get rid of him. He gets the right one. He shows up at her job. Like, in 2021 terms, this is not a romance waiting to happen. This is a restraining order waiting to happen. Right. He is just forcing himself into her life, and I don't understand why she acquiesces and what she sees in him. It's it's like she is treated solely as the prize. Even when we find out the reason that she's going to marry Henri is out of some sense of obligation. I, I get a sense of obligation because he saved her life, but to translate that into saying, okay, now I have, I must marry him because he asked and he protected me, like that, to give credit to Henri, when that character finds out the situation, he abdicates and says, okay, I am not the man you love. You go be happy. Mm-hmm. So I will give him full credit. Um, and apparently that's, one of the reasons that uh, Georges uh, Guterres was the one that actually played that role. It was originally offered to Maurice Chevalier, who refused to do it if he didn't get the girl. Wow. I I hate to be ageist. I, I would think Chevalier would have been a little old for the part at this point. Well, yeah, if we're talking about ageism, Caron was 19 and Kelly was 38. So there was already a pretty substantial gap. Right, but Chevalier would have had to have been in his 50s, right? Yeah, I I don't know. I will find out shortly. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just going off of, you know, he was the singing musical lead, like, in 31 and 32, so. Yeah, so he would not have been in his 50s. He would have been 63. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, definitely not better. But yeah, between his insistence that he get the girl and between the studio going... We have a, a genuinely French female lead, which was Gene Kelly's insistence. He had seen her in a French ballet. This is Leslie Caron's film debut. And it is not the last time we're going to be discussing her performances in this podcast. But he demanded, you know, a French female lead. And apparently Maurice Chevalier was cooperating with the Nazis during World War II. So that was something else that was rubbing the production the wrong way. So, yeah, I will say Georges Gatoré was definitely the right choice for that. And because they wanted to make Jerry more appealing match than Gatoré, they actually put fake gray in Gatoré's hair to make him appear older than Kelly because the actor was actually a bit younger 
only by two years. So it still would have been a 36 year old and a 19 year old. But yeah, I'm just, I, I struggle to accept the romance as it's presented here because really there is no romance. Our lead character decides who he wants and he keeps trying to get her, but he really does nothing to win her. This is one of those lopsided romances that Hollywood is still bad for often. I mean, it's honestly one of the same problems I have with Padme and Anakin in the Star Wars prequels. They do a really good job of showing why she appeals to him, but they don't seem to make any effort in showing why he appeals to her. I mean, there might be some physical attraction, but, and that, all they need to do to establish a physical attraction is, yeah, they look at each other. Right. But there's nothing else there. Uh, some of that, I think, is the shorthand. I, I mean, I completely agree. A lot of it's the context of the time. I think what also plays into that is the narrative shorthand of the belligerent American in a foreign setting. There could be that, too. Yep. And I just wonder, with the American production, Gene Kelly wanted to film it in Paris and was not happy with the sets. They built 44 sets on the MGM lot designed to look like Paris. Like, like I said, this cost 10 times as much as Singing in the Rain. It had a box office total of $7 million, but how much of that came in from people saying, you know, theaters saying, we want Singing in the Rain. Mm-hmm. Like I said, they yanked Singing in the Rain once it broke even, and it wasn't until That's Entertainment came out in 1970. And people saw that sequence, that demand increased for the film. And now it has grossed quite a bit between residual home video and residual TV. and But it, it's all residuals and some theatrical re-releases. It still works on screen. Local cinema used to do, before COVID, once a month, they would do classic cinema. So we've seen Singing in the Rain, a bunch of Hitchcock, and a bunch of classic Christmas films, including It's a Wonderful Life, on the big screen. And it still works today. But An American in Paris just, yeah, it does not work for me. And we do like musicals, folks. <laughs> if, if you've only listened to us cover the two that actually have won Academy Awards, it may not seem like it, but we do like musicals. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I mean, if we jump ahead over the discussion of what won and what should have won, with who would we recommend this to, I would recommend this to diehard ballet fans. I would recommend Singing in the Rain to anyone. I have met people who say they have no interest in musicals, and I convince them to give Singing in the Rain the shot, and they have never regretted it. The Singing in the Rain is, like I said, it's my pick for the best musical in Hollywood history. Um, at the very least, I know people who wouldn't put it at the top of the list, but if we were to do like a five-nomination runoff, I don't know anyone who says it won't be one of the five. I, I know, you know, Paul Spataro from Is It Jaws would pick West Side Story, for example. I know that I'm not sure what your number one pick would be, but I don't know anyone who says that Signal of the Rain is not top five. That I can heartily endorse. But an American in Paris, I can't get a passionate endorsement yeah. for it. You know, uh, you and I both have an interest in comic book pop culture, so I'll bring this up. I don't know what that Venn diagram is among our audience, but two uh, cameos that are worth calling out. Uh, the first, because it all comes back to Superman, trademark Michael Bailey, Noel Neal has a cameo in this as kind of a pretentious art student uh, criticizing Jerry's work. And then Madge Blake, known to most people as Aunt Harriet on the 60s Batman show 
is in this as a customer in Lisa's perfume shop. The interesting thing about Madge Blake, I know we keep going to Singing in the Rain, but she also has a part in Singing in the Rain in the opening as kind of like a film critic or someone who's interviewing Don Lockwood. So I was curious and I looked. This was her first of four appearances in Gene Kelly musicals. She's also in Singing in the Rain, Bandwagon, and Brigadoon. Oh, I can't place her in Brigadoon. I'll have to rewatch that again. A superior Gene Kelly, Vincent Minnelli musical. I, I quite enjoy Brigadoon, the, the story of a, a Scottish town that is only around for one day per century. Anyway, so shall we go through the other winners and nominees from this year's Academy Awards? Yes. All right, so clearly this won Best Picture up against Decision Before Dawn, A Place in the Sun, Quo Vadi, and A Streetcar Named Desire. Best Director went to George Stevens for A Place in the Sun, beating out John Huston for African Queen, Vincent Minnelli for An American in Paris, William Wyler for Detective Story, and Ilya Kazan for A Streetcar Named Desire. Best Actor went to Humphrey Bogart for The African Queen, beating out Marlon Brando for Streetcar Named Desire, Montgomery Clift for A Place in the Sun, Arthur Kennedy for Bright Victory, and Frederick March for Death of a Salesman. Best Actress went to Vivian Lee for A Streetcar Named Desire. Catherine Hepburn was nominated for African Queen, Eleanor Park for Detective Story, Shelley Winters for A Place in the Sun, and Jane Wyman for The Blue Veil. Best Supporting Actor went to Carl Malden for Streetcar Named Desire, beating out Leo Gann for Quo Vadi, Kevin McCarthy for Death of a Salesman, Peter Ustinov for Quo Vadi, and Gig Young for Come Fill the Cup. And Best Supporting Actress, Kim Hunter for A Streetcar Named Desire as Stella, beat out Joan Blondell for The Blue Veil, Mildred Dunnock for Death of a Salesman, Lee Grant for Detective Story, and Thelma Ritter for The Mating Season. Please note, all four major acting categories, not a single nomination for An American in Paris. Uh, Best Story and Screenplay went to An American in Paris, which is actually the first musical to do that. And for a long time, possibly still the only musical to win that award. It beat out Ace in the Hole, David and Bethesda, or Bathsheba, sorry, Go for Broke and The Well. Best Screenplay went to A Place in the Sun, beating out uh, The African Queen, Detective Story, La Ronde, and A Streetcar Named Desire. Best Story went to Seven Days to Noon, beating out Bullfighter and the Lady, The Frogman, Here Comes the Groom, and Teresa. Best Documentary went to Contiki beating out I Was a Communist for the FBI. Best Documentary Short Subject went to Benji, beating out The One Who Came Back in the Seeing Eye. Best Live Action Short Subject One Reel went to World of Kids, beating out Riding the Rails and The Story of Time. Best Live Action Short Subject Two Reel went to Nature's Half Acre, beating out Balzac and Danger Under the Sea. The Short Subject Cartoons went to The Two Mouseketeers, a Tom and Jerry short that beat out Lampert the Sheepest Lion, and Rudy Toot Toot. The best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture went to A Place in the Sun, beating out David and Bathsheba, Death of a Salesman, Quo Vadi, and A Streetcar Named Desire. Best scoring of a musical, An American in Paris won, beating out Alice in Wonderland, The Great Caruso, On the Riviera, and Showboat. The best song went to In the Cool Cool of the Evening, or In the Cool 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 of the Evening, sorry, there's three cools there, from Here Comes the Grill. 
beating out A Kiss to Build a Dream on from The Strip, Never from Golden Girl, Too Late Now from Royal Wedding, and Wonder Why from Rich Young and Pretty. So this musical was not even nominated for Best Song. There's no An American in Paris nominees there. Best Sound Recording went to The Great Caruso, beating out Bright Victory, I Want You, A Streetcar Named Desire, and Two Tickets to Broadway. Best Art Direction went to A Streetcar Named Desire, beating out 14 Hours, The House on Telegraph Hill, La Ronde, and Too Young to Kiss. Best Art Direction Color went to An American in Paris, beating out David and Bathsheba, On the Riviera, Quo and Tales of Hoffman. And that's one I can get behind, because it did look like there was some on-location filming in Paris, and there wasn't, so they did do a, a fine job with that, uh, setting up the classist differences and all that. So, yeah, there we'll be down on this film in a lot of ways, but credit where credit is due on the art direction. Mm-hmm. Best Cinematography in Black and White went to A Place in the Sun, Death of a Salesman, The Frogman, Strangers on the Train, and A Streetcar Named Desire. So yeah, that's A Place in the Sun beating the others. Best Cinematography went to An American in Paris for the, the color cinematography, beating out David and Bathsheba, Quo Showboat, and When Worlds Collide. Best Costume Design, Black and White, went to A Place in the Sun for Edith Head, who I think has won this award more than anyone else in history. She is one of the most Oscar-decorated people. She's won eight awards. That beat out Kind Lady, The Model on the Marriage Broker, The Moodlark, and A Streetcar Named Desire. Best Costume Design Color went to An American in Paris, beating out David and Bathsheba, The Great Caruso, Quo and Tales of Hoffman. And Film Editing, A Place in the Sun, beat out An American in Paris, Decision Before Dawn, Quo and The Well. And an Academy Our Academy Honorary Award went to Gene Kelly for his versatility as an actor, singer, director, and dancer, and specifically for his brilliant achievements in the art of choreography on film for An American in Paris. Another honorary award went to When Worlds Collide for the Best Special Effects. Best Foreign Language Film went to Rashomon by Akira Kurosawa. The Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award went to Arthur Freed for, you know, for his career but he was the producer on An American in Paris. So, yeah, the most nominated film was A Streetcar Named Desire with nine nominations. An American in Paris and Quo were tied in third with eight behind A Place in the Sun with nine. So there was a number that had two nominations, but the most wins, there's a tie for An American in Paris and A Place in the Sun with six each, and Streetcar took home four. The, the only qualifier I'll give on the tie for multiple awards is we're still in the period as people notice as you went through them where a lot of things were split for black and white versus color so we don't know if all of those had to be lumped in the same category who an american in paris and who a place in the sun would have come out because most of those wins were for both films were in those dual categories yeah this is true and this is actually only the second color film to win Best Picture after Gone with the Wind. So we'll see a few more, but then, yeah, the, the, the 50s are mixed for color and black and white. But after 1960, there are to date only two more black and white films to take home the award from 1993 and 2011. And we no longer, I, I think after, once we get into the 60s, I think we stop splitting the technical awards color versus black and white. Yeah, it sounds about right. I don't know off the top of my head, but we will get there. So before we go on to 
you know, how voters have historically voted and so forth. In terms of the decisions made, unfortunately, I am a teacher. We are recording this in December 2020, just a couple days after our winter break started. I, once again, sadly, have not had the opportunity to watch any of the nominees, although I've got Streetcar Named Desire. I do own that, which seems to be the elephant in the room in terms of reputation. So I can't say how I personally would stack up An American in Paris versus the other nominees. Um, how about you, Trey? An American in Paris. Uh, so I was able to squeeze in most except for Quo Vadi. I'm not opposed to long-running films, and we've covered some, but I just I couldn't squeeze a three-hour or a close to three-hour film in. Streetcar Named Desire is the best film out of the nominees. I would even put Place in the Sun above An American in Paris. There are a couple of awards to where um, Streetcar Named Desire and Place in the Sun were both up for the same award. I'm looking over at Best Director, and even there, I think A Streetcar Named Desire is a superior film to A Place in the Sun. African Queen kind of focuses heavily as well. I've seen that before. I think it's a better film. For our podcast, I tend to focus on those that were nominated for Best Picture. So when you have one like African Queen that was nominated in several other categories, um, sometimes I don't pick that one up in my watch list. There are a lot of interesting parallels between A Place in the Sun and A Streetcar Named Desire. A Place in the Sun kind of wants to be noir, but isn't quite there. But you have Montgomery Clift, who was kind of cut from the same cloth as uh, Marlon Brando. So you kind of have dueling leads with similar styles, uh, similar acting styles, if you will. And don't get me wrong, you know, you could even match up Vivian Lee and Elizabeth Taylor and Shelley Winters and Kim Hunter. There are just a lot of actor and actress stereotypes kind of in similar roles in both films. Okay. Well, um, going through what others have thought of the year, if we compare it to the Golden Globes, I think this may be a tip for why this one. Because when it came to Best Picture Drama, the Golden Globes gave the award to A Place in the Sun with nominees Bright Victory, Detective Story, Quo Vadi, and A Streetcar Named Desire. But the Golden Globes split between drama and comedy or musical. And Best Picture Comedy or Musical, American in Paris won. There were no other nominations. This was the only film on that ballot. So I wonder if this was able to take home the Oscar, even to the surprise of MGM, because the, there was a percentage of the population that wanted to vote for happy movies, and they just didn't have alternatives. That can't be right, can it? I mean, I wouldn't think that. <laughs> well, at least amongst the nominees, right? When you're talking yeah. about the five that actually made the ballot for the Oscars, they, you know, we talk about splitting the vote as, you know, we're recording this a month after the U.S. election, even though they're not American. We were still paying attention in Canada because there's a lot of influence there. So I wonder if that's part of it. Going through how letterboxed voters have rated the films, of the nominees, A Streetcar Named Desire is the best of the year. So number one film, ignoring the nominees, is Early Summer. Then there's Ace in a Hole, uh, Diary of a Country Priest, The Browning Version, Strangers on a Train, which I have seen. It's Hitchcock. I can hardly endorse that. And then Streetcar is next. Then there's 
uh, non-English language film, which always struggle at the Oscars, Cops and Robbers, followed by A Place in the Sun. So, oh, sorry, yeah. So Streetcar Named Desire is sixth, A Place in the Sun is eighth, and then An American in Paris comes in at 38th of the year, behind A Christmas Carol, behind The Day the Earth Stood Still, behind Othello, The Lavender Hill Mob, On Dangerous Ground, behind Alice in Wonderland, The African Queen, Detective Story. They are pretty far behind. Compare it to the IMDb voters. IMDb voters say the best film of the year is the Browning version, followed by Early Summer, which appears to be a Japanese film. Then the 1951 version of A Christmas Carol, stalling, or starring Alastair Sim, comes in at third. Ace in the Hole with Kirk Douglas is fourth. A Streetcar Named Desire is again the highest rated of the nominees. Here it's fifth, followed by Strangers on the Train, so those two have just kind of flipped around. Then we have Awara, Diary of a Country Priest. A Place in the Sun is number nine. Skipping ahead, um, we again have The Day the Earth Stood Still at 14, The African Queen at 15, Othello at 16, Lavender Hill Mob at 17, Detective Story at 20. If I jump ahead and now point out, well, Alice in Wonderland is 27th for the year, looking exclusively now at the nominees. Cool Vibe comes in at number 39 for the year, and Decision Before Dawn is the 43rd best movie of the year, and American in Paris is number 44, again just restricting it to English language feature films released in 1951 with at least 1,000 votes. So changing those restrictions might add even more films on top, but it's not going to change the order of those five. So as far as letter, or as far as IMDb users are concerned, An American in Paris is actually the worst of the nominees for this year. I hate to be petty about it. The the other Oscar win that the film has that's sticking in my craws, best story and screenplay. I granted, I haven't seen the screenplay right. So if you're judging it screenplay on screenplay, maybe. But just based off of what you see on the screen, I can't believe that American in Paris had a better screenplay than Ace in the Hole. Yeah, I I don't see, it, especially since so much of it, like we said, it seems like they picked their dance numbers first and the musical sequences, and then strung together just enough story to give you an excuse to go from one to the other. Like, singing I Got Rhythm with what looks like 30 little kids. Why are 30 little kids hanging out together doing nothing until he comes around the corner? Why do we spend so much time, as much as I love the good Buster Keaton tribute, that whole dream sequence does nothing for character development. So yeah, he has aspirations. We know that. He's a concert pianist. I think the only thing that adds is him aspiring to be the uh, conductor. But is that actually an aspiration? Or is that like, you know, a random person on the street who doesn't know how to play guitar daydreaming about being a rock star? It's, yeah, this is one of the years where I'm going to say the Academy made a mistake to the point that when we look at the other films that were released in that year, I would say it's not just a mistake to give this an award to an American in Paris. I would say it's a mistake to have it in one of the top five on the ballot. If MGM had decided to back their horses behind Singing in the Rain and push for that one for 1952, I haven't seen Greatest Show on Earth yet, but I don't think I've seen anything from 1952 that I would pick over Singing in the Rain. We'll get to that in more detail next month for how that stacks up in history. You know, it's hard to... It's hard to think of what's going on in 
the mind of both the nomination process and the um, voting process. You know, you brought up a great point. I haven't seen Quo Vadi, but that's pretty much the only happy film on the nomination list. You know, was that it? Or is this one of those these films to where the technical artifice um, was recognized and kind of trumped the emotion and performances? I, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, it is a very elaborate production. I mean, it was very rare for movies to have a budget over $1 million, and this hit $2.7. Like they spent half a million dollars on that ballet in the last 17 minutes. So, yeah, you're right. that on the, From a technical standpoint, yeah, this would have been a very difficult film to make, and it got made. And it, as much as we've been down on it, it's not a bad film. No. I mean, I'm, if you're interested, I wouldn't say don't see it. It's just not in that upper echelon that Academy Award Best Picture winners should be. That, that, that's, that's a great point to bring up, Lane, and I, I hope we've built up that reputation with our listeners just by the nature of the podcast. We are, we are comparing the cream of the crop every year, or at least let the industry fall for the cream of the crop every year, so... We're picking what is the best A film. And yeah, occasionally we're saying this film's not an A, it's really a B plus. But I don't think we've really had a film to where we've come out and gone, okay, this was an F. Yeah, even, okay, maybe Cavalcade was a C minus, yeah. but even that's like bottom of the barrel so far. So yeah, I so if you are a huge fan of musicals, I would say it's worth adding this to your watch list, but... Again, The Pirate, Brigadoon, Singing in the Rain, The Music Man, West Side Story, The Sound of Music, My Fair Lady. Some of these we will discuss in much more detail later because they also won Best Picture. But if you were making a list of musicals to go out and see, I would have no problems putting this on that list if you are seeing them specifically for the dancing, especially the ballet. But I wouldn't put it near the top. I don't know, what would you say, if I were to pick my top three musicals, I would probably point to uh, Singing in the Rain is number one. The Music Man is probably my pick for the second best. Again, because I can more easily accept why those characters are singing and dancing and where the musical numbers are coming from. And then, you know, for the, the third pick, you know, we could have the 1986 Little Shop of Horrors. We could have The Sound of Music, the... I could probably put together a list of top 10 musicals and I wouldn't necessarily get to this one. So what would your top two or three be, Trey? It's three that's hard. I mean, Singing in the Rain would be up there. When I think musicals, I always think of The Wizard of Oz. That's probably more because mm -hmm. of just its omnipresent nature. You know, at least, at least here in the States, if you grew up, in the 70s and 80s, it was, you know, uh, Paul talks about the Laurel and Hardy March of the Wooden Soldiers or Babes in Toyland being a perennial, you know, every year film being shown at the holidays. Here it was, you know, The Wizard of Oz. I love Music Man. I, I have, I like Oliver. I like Chicago. I like Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, I could probably throw Mary Poppins on the list. Yeah, I was trying to think of... Is it on the town? That's New York, New York, a hell of a town. Did I read that? Yeah, I, that 
Yeah, on the town is it's also the uh, fourth listed. If you go to the IMDb for the best known for for Gene Kelly, Singing in the Rain is number one, and American in Paris is number two, and I think On the Town is number four. Yeah, um, I probably wouldn't be thinking of it if it wasn't for the fact that it's Christmas time. I've got a soft spot for the Albert Finney Scrooge. In, in, any musical that can just make me years removed still remember parts of the music, you know, whether it be, you know, thank you very much or, you know, consider yourself at home, consider yourself part of the family, you know, from Oliver or whatever, you know, those are, those are mm-hmm. things that stick with me. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm just running through my mental list and yeah, honestly, I might even put earth girls are easy above an American in Paris <laughs> on the musical list. You know, that's uh for those who aren't familiar with it, it, I don't understand how we got the cast it did. It's uh, Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, Damon Wayans, Jim Carrey when he was just a guy from In Living Color and wasn't yet Jim Carrey, uh, Michael McKean, Julie Brown. It, it's got a very impressive cast, but it I would say I get more enjoyment out of watching Earth Girls Are Easy than I do out of watching this. And Earth Girls Are Easy had zero Academy Award aspirations they probably would have been shocked to receive a nomination. Although IMDb voters are clearly disagreeing with me because they have given an American in Paris an average rating of 7.2 out of 10. Earth Girls Are Easy is only at a 5.4. Which is not an unfair rating of Earth Girls Are Easy. Oh, right. I forgot Larry Linville is in that too. And Charles Rocket. I don't understand how it got that cast. It is goofy. It is unpretentious. Whereas I think... Part of my reaction with An American in Paris is just because it's got that Best Picture winner status, and I don't think it was Best Picture candidacy. Although, I mean, like that honorary award for Gene Kelly for the choreography and what he did for dance on film, that absolutely, mm-hmm. you know, heartily endorse it. And this is a good showcase of that. Right? If if you want to see a ballet, you can watch this movie and see a ballet. But it really feels like this was ballet first, story second. So I've already mentioned that that's who I would compare it or recommend this to would be the ballet fans. And for musical fans, we've given our recommendations. Who would you recommend this particular film to? Um, I do think it's a good Gene Kelly showcase. So if you if you like Gene Kelly, you know, I I would put this on, you know, I, I would put this up there. It's probably like when i think of the three great gene kelly performances or the three gene kelly performances that are probably best known it's singing in the rain and american in paris and anchors away because of the jerry the mouse dance number Mm -hmm. but i mean you know that's about it i i don't find it to be particularly a love letter to paris you know paris is a setting but it's not a character in the film if you will I don't even know, like, if you're uh, trying to follow Vincent Minnelli, uh, you, you know, we both agree there are better musicals um, out there. You've mentioned The Pirate. You know, I would go to Meet Me in, you know, Meet Me in St. Louis, which was nominated but didn't win the year that it came out. Yeah, it's also excellent. I just didn't mention it because I was mentioning the Minnelli Gene Kelly collaborations specifically. But yeah, Meet Me in St. Louis is another very good musical. You know, I think if people discovered this today, 
you would have to be watching something like a That's Entertainment and see a clip and go, hmm, that looks interesting to me. I want to see more of it. But I don't know who that audience would be today. I think that, you know, the Gene Kelly showcase is probably a very good choice. So, again, it's on that list, but not necessarily at the top. I did reach out to one of the professional dancers I know to try and get her feedback and input on this. Sadly, she hasn't seen the movie. So I was hoping a professional dancer could look at it and say, no, this is why Mm -hmm. it it got that spot, because this particular part of the technical aspects is just mind-blowing, but I I don't have that context. Well, you know, that's a good point. How would, you know, there's often amongst our crowds, if you will, amongst film lovers, you know, there's the debate, who's better, Gene Kelly versus Fred Astaire? It would be interesting to get a dancer's take on, look at look at a film like An American in Paris or all that jazz or chorus line. What what was the more technical demanding from a dance perspective? You know, which ones really, you know, got the best dance numbers from, you know, someone who's more of an expert in that particular art genre. I, I know I prefer Gene Kelly films to Fred Astaire films. I could not pick the better dancer because when I look at them, I just see two flawless dancers. I, I can't say this perfection is better than that perfection, but I will pick a Gene Kelly movie over a Fred Astaire movie almost every time because Gene Kelly is the superior actor and has, I think, superior charisma. I agree with that up to a point. You know, we, we've discussed before, and oddly enough, it's in a non-dance setting. I think an older Fred Astaire is a much better actor than a young Fred Astaire. I think Astaire benefited from more charismatic partners in that, you know, so for I'll, I'm going to pick on Leslie Caron in this film. By and large, if I have to watch a Leslie Caron film versus a Ginger Roger films or a Rita Hayworth film or, you know, I just find those to be more engaging Mm-hmm. leading ladies, and I think Astaire's films benefited from that, whereas Kelly's films didn't. That's true. I mean, Carol, we talked about her issues with exhaustion. She was also weak in English, which is part of the reason they did some edits on the script to reduce her number of lines, because she was having a hard time with memorizing them and pronouncing them, which I think just was a disservice to her character in the end. I get why they wanted a Parisian dancer, and as a dancer... I, I can't complain about Carol, but yeah, she wasn't much of an actress at this point in her career, especially in the English language. And you mentioned Ginger Rogers. Yeah, there's you can make the case that she is actually the best dancer in Hollywood history. The the logic that she had in an interview, you know, when someone said, So, you know, what was it like, you know, dancing with Fred Astaire? And like people I forget exactly how the interviewer worded it, but he basically was phrasing it in a way that says, what was it like to bask in his glory? And her response was, I did everything Fred Astaire did, but I did it backwards and in heels. Mm -hmm. So you could use that logic to make a very strong case to say that, yeah, the best dancer in Hollywood history is Ginger Rogers. So did you have any parting thoughts on this one? No, I would watch it again. But, you know, again, I'd have to admit, the temptation to fast forward through that ballet segment is really, really high. Yeah, I could see that. And uh, I don't know. I, My wife and I watched it a couple of years ago when we were just 
introducing her to musicals because she's she was born and raised in Vietnam and only moved to Canada about five years ago. And she didn't have the opportunity to see a lot of movies. It just wasn't part of the culture she was raised in. Um, their local movie theater was a, a friend of a friend in high school who had a very big TV and would charge people admission to come watch stuff at their house. That was the theater. So and that was a, a big push in her high school years because, you know, that's when they got electricity. It was a very, very highly populated country. So, I mean, I watched it with her then. And I think that was the first time I tried to watch it since I was a child. And at this point, I I can't picture myself saying, I'm in the mood for a musical and choosing to watch this one, given that I also own copies of Singing in the Rain and Bring a Dune and The Music Man and The Sound of Music and West Side Story and My Fair Lady. And so it, it's not bad. It's just not the upper echelon we're going for. So I... I may not see watching this for the third time as an adult as being a more valuable use of time than, you know, watching Singing in the Rain for the 30th time as an adult. If anything, you know, out there, we, we mentioned our recording friend, John Wilson. Uh, John notoriously hates not liking things. And I have a little bit of that bug sometimes, too. I could see me re-watching it because it'll bug me that I didn't like it more in line with what its reputation is. Okay. Yeah, so trying to do the what did I miss thing. Yeah. Yeah, whereas having seen it a couple of times now, I am utterly convinced that what I'm missing is an understanding of how great the technical achievement this dancing was. And unless I learn so much more about dancing that I can freely judge it, I don't think a rewatch is going to appeal to me. Trey, would you like to let our listeners know what we've got coming up next month? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, step right up, step right up. A show for you the likes of which you've never seen. We will be showing, we will be reviewing and watching what is literally titled The Greatest Show on Earth. Cecil B. DeMille's Circus Epic, starring Charlton Heston, Betty Hutton, and Jimmy Stewart. Okay, and this will be a first-time watch for me, though not for you. No, and I'll go into that story next month. No, um, and as we have started doing, just to list the other nominees for people who've got hopefully time to compare, this was up against High Noon, Ivanhoe, the original Moulin Rouge, directed by John Huston, and The Quiet Man by John Ford. So that was the competition of the 1952 releases. So join us next month for our discussion of The Greatest Show on Earth. Which, um, if you want to uh, watch along with us, at least in the States, I don't know if Pluto TV is in Canada, Blaine, um, The Greatest Show on Earth is currently streaming on uh, Pluto TV. There will be ads, but it is a free service. Oh, interesting. Um, let's find out right now if it's available in Canada and possibly add out some silence in the recording. In Canada, Pluto TV seems to allow the live streaming, but at this point, the on-demand doesn't okay. appear to be working. So, Canadian viewers, I got it at a reasonable price through the um, Apple Store. So that is a, a good option for us. And in the meanwhile, thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said... Life was like a box of chocolates.
You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.